God's at work when I'm in a bad mood. God's at work when I'm in a good mood. God's at work in really, really broken ways, and we live with constant paradox. God's at work accomplishing his purpose in his world, and he cannot be thwarted by anyone or anything in, accomplish, in the accomplishment of that purpose. Because God is at work, the church is progressing through evangelism, through the building up of the saints, through the preaching of the word. He's at work primarily by the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. This is true, and this is one of said like R-Y-M-L-T. This is true regardless of how things appear to us. Where do you see this in the Bible? Where do you see someone actually, or as Kurt Thompson said, be living, be leaving is be living like it's true? Where do you see people be living like it's true in the, like the God's at work in the, old, in the Old Testament or New Testament? In other words, things look really bad, they keep going. They get in the CRV. Where do you find that in Scripture? Yeah, tell me your name. Hey, Chris. Oh, my goodness. And so he's like barely like a flickering wick and just like, I'm done with this. And then the whole whisper, yeah, he hears in the whisper and the wind and the, whoo, yeah, he stays in it because God's at work, not because Elijah's at work. God is at work, that's why we work. Our work is always response to God's sovereign work. We do not create, we respond to God being at work. In fact, we are products of God being at work. What's another example in Scripture of God, this, this idea of presupposition, God being at work? Paul, talk to me about that. Yeah. It's like um, the spiritual battle, he just sees that as a given. And not in some sort of stoic, sick way. He's actually has a ton of emotion, a ton of feeling. And like he's, he says we're like pushed down, but we're not sinking, basically. And so like we look at him as like, man, he must be this like this real Navy, Christian Navy SEAL, right? He's just so tough. No, the reality is life had so pushed him down into the, his union with Christ that he had learned contentment. That when he was up and when he was down, he was in Christ. So he learned to what rejoice in because God's at work. God's at work. God's at work. Now, I want you to just take a minute and think about how God may be in your church right now. And some issues, some person, some relationship, something in your church right now where he's wanting you to just sink into that God is at work. Something that looks absolutely just ridiculous, impossible, so hard you want to throw up in your mouth. And you don't want to keep doing it. This even when that says like, even when I don't want to keep doing it, God's at work. Even when I fail, God's at work. God will work through his word. We do not need to give people our opinions about things. Because God's at work. We don't have to like 
We don't have to, it keeps us from raging on our students or being passive aggressive with them. You're free, how about this? You're free to allow people and yourself, yourself to fail because God's at work. Tell me, before we move on to the next one, like, I'm really, like, drilling down on this one. Tell me, like, and you don't have to be, you don't have to be specific, but, like, tell me why right now, maybe in your ministry, having this sort of as a prior belief before you ever go back, that, like, you're committed to this as a premise. Why that, why in your context that's so important? And this is what RYM leadership training is about. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. Anybody amen on that? <laughs> Do you feel like you're like, yeah. Like he's using us, and it's like he's pleased to use us, but he could he doesn't have to. Yeah, tell me, someone else use that one, drive that one home. That's great. Thanks, Noah. Got it work. This is why I'm still in. Honestly, this is why I'm still in ministry. Um. God is at work. And God will be at work. Most of ministry, y'all, the the illustrations for ministry are farming illustrations. They're agricultural. The sower throwing the seed, the fruit in the vine, spiritual fruit, right? Jesus talks about someone like someone sows and someone waters and someone reaps. It's, they're all agricultural, organic things. Have you ever watched something grow? Now, I'm not talking about a time-lapse thing. It's so slow. And you ever been around farmers? I'm from Arkansas. My wife's from Mississippi. We've been around farmers. Like farming. Have you ever been around farming, some of y'all? Farmers are like, yeah, I just hope it doesn't rain too little or too much or I'm broke. I, what, here's what I'm, they, they get this. And so if you can think agriculturally about your ministry and that it is a slow process that God's at work, it will bring so much sanity. And at the same time, it will totally energize you to do the things that we're supposed to do. And we'll talk about principles tomorrow. Scott, gospel, 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 gospel. Even though you've got a senior pastor or a session who are saying like, more programs, bigger fireworks, crush it, all that kind of stuff like that. That's between him and God. Your job is to be faithful to keep doing those things. And, hey, I get it. All of us are afraid of losing our job. Just own that. But God's at work. What are you supposed to do? That. Show up, preach the gospel, love students. I mean, that's, that's it. If you get fired for doing that, sorry. <laughs> I'm serious. Like, here's the thing. Like, the church is really, really broken, and some churches are extremely broken in the point of being in crisis. But I, I, life is too short not to just be doing the gospel ministry. It just is. It's just not. That's the reason I'm doing all, 
Yeah, RUF. You know what I'm saying? He's a senior pastor over here. Okay. God's at work, and he's at work. Here's the second presupposition. God's at work in individuals. So what we have, we have a certain presupposition about the individual. We have assumptions about the uniqueness of our students. There is a unity among the individuals of the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. However, there is great diversity among individuals, both staff and students, with respect to their stories, their gifts, their abilities, their personalities, their spiritual states, their problems, their issues. The value of an individual, one person, like we value the one sheep. Jesus leaves the 90, talking about leaving the 99, going to the one. The one sheep. This is one of the reasons I love seeing this in the gospel, especially in the gospel of John. There are more interactions. Is it okay if I put my drink there? Okay. Yeah, go for it, man. Of Jesus being totally tracked or being dialed in with one person. I was thinking about Jesus was so rooted that God was at work that he knew like that his, it wasn't going to end well in one sense. Like he knew it was going to be ripped limb from limb. It became more and more apparent to him. He's owning this messianic reality, this identity of who he is and who he's always been and who he will be. But to realize that he knew that it wasn't his time to die, that he knew he was going to die. How, do you, how does someone be present with one individual and have a real conversation when you know you're about to, at some point, die? That's some serious anxiety, right? How could he do it? It's because he knew that an individual made in the image of God is precious to God. That one person. That one person. And how many times in my ministry I've looked through people or I've looked for a certain type of person or I've looked and said, how big is this group? And I've missed the presupposition of this individual is everything right now. So what does it mean to have presupposition of an individual? It means we, like what I like to tell my staff at Vanderbilt, we nerd out on their stories. We are to become listeners and real big fans of human beings and listening to their story and learning to listen and to remember their stories and to hear their story. Which means that's why our ministry of a one-on-one. It's what, so you're beginning to see how this is going to begin to shape. Why do we have one-on-ones? Right? What kind of one-on-ones do we have? We have one-on-ones where people feel valued. It's a presupposition. And the reason is, that's the way Jesus was. One of my favorite stories is Jesus going to, to a widow at Nain, the town Nain. And Jesus is walking through and they're carrying her son up on this like cot, this beer thing, this and he's dead. Her son's dead. And so she was a widow, and her son had died, which would have made her probably effectively either a prostitute or completely destitute because she didn't have anything at that point. If you're a widow without a son in the ancient Near East, ballgame. And so Jesus is walking through this town, and here is this woman, and she's weeping, and they're carrying her son, and he walks up to her. 
it says his heart was filled with compassion for her. And you know the word for compassion? Do you know it's the same word for? Y'all know the root word? Guts. Inner parts. He just went like, oh. Like they visibly could see him being moved with compassion for that one woman in a little nowhere town. And he stopped. He said, don't cry. Don't cry. And he touches her son. And there's this beautiful moment that it says he guides her son back down and gives her son back, he's a young man, back to the widow. And so what you have this picture is Jesus is doing this, almost all three of their heads together. Like that picture. That's the heart of ministry. That's like the heart of ministry. Is God is at work and he's at work in the lives of individuals. God is loving individuals through you. It's not your love. Think about that. I kind of love the students I like. <laughs> you know what I mean? You might like the cool students, and you may like the weird students, but you love the students you kind of like. There's ones that you kind of are into, right? But, like, how can you possibly love people? We put this as a presupposition is we want people's stories, each and every single one of them, to feel valued, which means my ministry's got to be bigger than me because I can't value every individual. But I can create systems that value individuals. It's a presupposition. Does that make sense? It's like really, like, so this shapes, now the how part, this shapes how you do welcome on your, on your large group night, your Wednesday night meeting. Why? Because it's a presupposition. Because it's a presupposition of valuing individuals, you want individuals to feel known. So, like, that's going to shape the way that you have greeters. It's going to shape, like, programs. Now you begin to think how, little by little, you're thinking about how we use methods now, but your methods are driven by your presuppositions. What are our methods normally driven by? Just, by the way, how do we, what are our methods, what normally drives our methods? I'll speak for myself. What normally has, in the last 15, 16 years, driven my, method, my methodology? Results. Results. Pragmatism. But this is what makes us RYM. This is what makes us RUF. The value of an individual. This also means we value the individuals not just of our students, the individuality of our students and their stories, but our staff. So one of the one of the reasons, one of the ways this shapes what I do on campus is I have three interns and one full-time staff person. So I meet with my full-time staff, I meet with Grace Ann at least two hours every week, the two of us. One is like a business meeting, and the other one is just me just being her pastor. Um, that's a time commitment. Because I have to also meet with like, I don't know, however many students want to do one-on-ones with me. I, have, I meet with my other students, my other, my other staff, at least an hour, because I am their pastor. I'm pouring into them. I'm listening to their stories. I'm praying with them. I'm listening. I'm, I'm in it. And so... Since we value individuals, if, you're not inv- if your leadership doesn't feel known as individuals and valued, they will not produce it either. In other words, if, you're, if your people don't feel ministered to, they don't have anything to minister with. That's why we value individuals. You can't give what you don't have. So it's like why people die on the vine in churches. 
It was like, no, no one ever like talks to me. They just, I think I've met with a pastor one time or like, no, I feel like I'm invisible. But you have a presupposition of an individual that's going to shape what you do. Now that's going to look very cumbersome and inefficient. Like most businesses would go like, that's very inefficient that you meet with every single week for two hours with your staff person. It's very inefficient. It is if I don't have this as a presupposition. Do you see how genius that is? Talk to me about this. John. One is just the tension that exists in ministry. So there's like, there's p- part of that's just like, some of it's generational. Some of it's background and some of those things. So like your leadership's not on board with this. Here's what I would say. There are subversive ways that you can do this because the benefits of doing this, they can't argue with this stuff. Because over time, you talk about depth. You talk about, re- you talk about doing the biblical world and life view and fellowship and service. This only comes because you're creating a community where people feel known and loved and like they matter and belong. And so you're, re- you're duplicating that kind of ministry. It just begins to flow out of it. Now, if, if, you're, if people don't want to do that and they're against that, then you have a completely different issue on your hands. You're, does it make sense? And so like I think what, what, that, what I mean by that is let, let the religion themselves. Like I'm so committed to the worth of, of an individual as a presupposition that it's kind of a deal breaker. Does that make sense? And it also means you can be subversive as a staff person in the way you, tr- first, first of all, the way you treat your staff and then the way you treat your student leaders and in the way that you kind of minister and reach out with them. And it's, here's, here's the way Jesus did it in his ministry. He had uh, Peter, James, and John. John was his closest. But he spent a lot of time with Peter, James, and John. Everywhere was Peter, James, and John. Right? He had the three, and then he had the 12, and then he had the 72, and they kept growing out. But, but it's a concentration from a staff standpoint on these people that you're loving and ministering to as a presupposition. That's a different model. It's like a, that's a model, that's a way of looking at staff, and it's a way of looking to ministry. Sure. That is uh, a very, I do that. Um, you have to have very clear boundaries. Um, and in some cases, it's inappropriate. And when it's inappropriate, it shouldn't happen. Um, but I don't, y- y'all, could, y'all can feedback on what it looks like at youth ministry level. The way they tell us at RUF is, you got to get over it. If you're not comfortable meeting with girls, deal with it. Get over it. You need to be meeting with girls. Because if not, they're going to feel like freaks, and you're just going to reinforce everything else the church is doing. Like they're second-class citizens, and then you're only going to meet with the boys. Right? Get over it. 
And so I don't know what that looks like in church. I know that there's underage things. There's all kind of things like that. You need to bring a parent in. You need another woman in would probably be a wise thing. In other words, if it's an awkward kind of situation. Um, someone, so what does it look like for a male youth minister to value the individual of um, a student leader? What, does that look, what do you all think that actually looks like in a way that's really intentional from a presupposition? Y'all would know better than me. Yeah, Caleb. I'm sure that there's all kinds of things to think through in that. And that's why one-size-fits-all doesn't work. We're just saying as a presupposition, as a premise, as a basic thought, both male and female need to feel valued. One of the things this does, y'all, is it allows me to be very present at Starbucks 3 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon when there's a million other things I could be doing. And I realize there's nothing else I need to be doing. That's what the, that, like, you want to really want to bring it down to being really practical. It's like, you ever feel like a one-on-one is a waste of time and it's in your way because there's other important results-oriented things that you could be doing? And you realize that this is it. Like, this is it. And people can tell. People can tell if you're really, like, you're interested in them. And you need to pray sometimes, like, some of y'all just, like, help God, like, help you nerd out on people's stories. Like, we call it, one of the things we say, and we use it sort of tongue-in-cheek, but we're kind of fanboys and fangirls of our students. Not in the sense that we worship them, but we really are interested in them. And we love what they do. And we're so proud of them. And we think we're, we're so supportive of them. Now, they're also totally jacked up, workaholic, you know, freaks. But the same, so we, so the gospel cuts both ways. So there's also broken things about them. So we're not just all affirmative, but the people, y'all, people actually need to actually really be celebrated, and and I think Jesus did that. Okay, let's move on to the second. So God's at work in individuals, both that means both our students as individuals, and in our staff, as a presupposition. But He's also work at work in a demographic. Now this is one of the big words that. Uh, Demographics, right? Demographics. That means we have assumptions about the environment of ministry. So our ability to minister is affected by demographical factors, including the personality of a place, personality of a church, the types of students that we minister to, where they're from, the type of staff and their characteristics. And text. This is why Decatur, Alabama, and Japan, having presupposition, having the presupposition of demographics 
allows, us, allows our ministries to be totally unified in the principles and in the goals, but totally diverse in how our methods are. This is why the ministry at Vanderbilt is going to look so much different than the ministry at University of Arkansas. And the ministry at University of Arkansas is going to look totally different than the ministry at Santa Barbara. But we're all doing RUF. Here's the, isn't that beautiful? There's unity and diversity within that because our contexts are totally different. One gospel, timeless gospel, totally different people. Where in scripture do you see the presupposition of a demographic at work? Maybe like in the book of Acts. Where do y'all see that? Yeah, tell me your name. Hey, Jaden. Yeah, they were like, wait a second, we've got this, we have this group that feels totally marginalized, and we have this group that we're kind of alike, so our demographic is mixed between Jews and Gentiles, and so how are we going to contextualize and make a decision based on our demographics? We're not changing the gospel, we're not changing our principles, but how do we take our principles and then make them relevant to our context? That's all the early church was doing. That's basically early church history, is how in the world do we take this gospel of Jesus Christ, which is this exquisitely eternal, most wonderful good news of all time, and then to a profoundly pluralistic society. And so you see Paul going to Athens. He's, the way he does things in Athens is totally different based on demographic. When he's in Greece, it's the way he did in Jerusalem. Or he's with Jews or he's with Gentiles. He completely shifts, but he never changes the gospel. Trunk stays the same, but because he has a demographic as a presupposition, which is always shifting, he starts pivoting. So he goes to Mars Hill, and he's looking out, and he's like, you're really religious. That's what he says to him. I can see that you're extremely religious. You're totally jamming on this stuff. You're extremely zealous religious people. And, and, and just before, he's like, was sickened by how many idols there were, but the way he approached it was, y'all got a bunch of idols, you got a bunch of gods out here, and I can see that you're really committed to them because you're trying to find ultimate answers, and you're out here talking about all these things. But you have one idol that's made to an unknown god. I know who he is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He was crucified, rose from the dead. Repent and believe in him. And so the way he did that there, and so here's a point. Having demographic assumptions about the environment of our ministry keeps us from a one-size-fits-all, keeps us keeps us from what worked in 1980-whatever, right? The glory days. In the words of Bono, okay, I'm 44, I can quote Bono. You can glorify the past till the future dries up, right? You can glorify the past ministry thing until your future is like dead, your church is dead. I mean, a lot of churches are like Civil War reenactors, right? They're fighting battles that don't exist next to a superhighway, right? And so how do we shift... How do we shift in order to do those things by staying true and theologically orthodox and reformed? Demographic. Which allows us to push on certain things and to pull back on certain things based on our context. The style of ministry, the methods that are employed will all be different based on demographic. We must resist the tendency to become motivated purely by a desire to produce certain numbers of students or to assess the I started thinking about this. Is like 20 years ago, Vanderbilt University was a very southern school 
and it was it had an acceptance rate of probably I don't know 25 30 30 percent right 25 it was a hard school to get into but it wasn't six percent which is what it is now six percent of applicants get into Vanderbilt University they're all making 36s they're all valedictorian so there are more students now this happened last year from Illinois than there are from Tennessee so you think I'm gonna do ministry the way that they did it 20 years ago when everybody's from Birmingham and Atlanta and Highland Park Texas right we're like there's a totally different demographic so I'm having, strong, I'm having conversations with most of my students have no idea who Zacchaeus the wee little man was. But if I come out singing Zacchaeus the wee little man, they're like, you're insane. We have no idea what you're talking about. So talk to me about how this looks in youth ministry. Like, why is this? I think it's liberating. How is this liberating in youth ministry as a demographic? The presupposition of demographic. Having this as a presupposition. Here's the thing, y'all are doing it anyway. Youth minister's the best at it. You just didn't know you you didn't know you had it, but you got it. Y'all are crushing this because y'all, you don't exist without this. Right? You gotta do this. How are y'all doing it? Give me an example. It could be like a really micro example. They're throwing shade. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. What else? That's a great example. Social media is sort of like a necessary evil thing. Don't get me started. Yeah. Great example. So the school thing's huge for y'all, right? So they all go to this school, they all go to that school. How do these people, the people at this school hate these people at this school, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. So it allows you to pivot. It's why something like this can be helpful, RYM, as you're sharing best practices. But also, when someone's doing something you hear and they're like, wow, that's crushing it, always do it and kind of step back because we have presupposition demographic and go, like, ask the question like, how is that, why is that working in your demographic? Talk to me about your demographic. That's a question where you, so you like won't hate yourself because they have 300 people coming to something. But they may find out that like literally they're in like the heart of Dixie and like everyone's a Christian, but no one is, right? Go ahead, John. deck is it's always shifting and so if you have a you can't have a static response to those things it's a, uh, 
I think it was Derrida that said, you, we all want to freeze a waterfall. You can't. Like, I know he's a postmodern, he's not a Christian, blah, blah, blah. But, like, here's the point. That's a good quote. Because, <laughs> like, we want to freeze a waterfall. We want to freeze what worked. But when you do that, you die. The greatest contextualization based on demographic presupposition is the incarnation of God. <laughs> right? So, like, we don't want to do contextualization here. We don't like that word. That's Leslie Newbegin, right? If you know who that is. Like, you have, like, a church like that be like, well, I think contextualization is a big deal to God. Why? Because, because he became a man who spoke Aramaic. Right? That's the most contextualized thing of all time. He tabernacled among us. But we never lose the core of our faith. So we have a fixed theology and a flexible methodology. We have a fixed that theology because of our demographic presupposition. Mark Lowry and those guys were absolutely brilliant when they came up with that. Okay, let's move on. Presupposition. What is a presupposition? Yeah, something we know is true that we never think about. <laughs> well, we don't, yeah, it's not that we never think about it. It's like it's implicit. It's like walking. You don't think about walking. You're just walking, right? It's just like born. You can think about walking, but that's kind of like weird. Like, okay. But like it's an implicit kind of belief. Uh, and so it's just buried, but it's like foundational. It's what keeps you rooted. So you have, we all have presuppositions. Some of us have really, a lot of us, like we all have kind of messed up presuppositions that need to change over time, right? So like core beliefs, like I'm, a, I'm dumb. That's it. Some of y'all have a presupposition of that I'm dumb or I'm bad or I'm dirty. And so it shapes the way your tree looks, right, over time. How shame is a presupposition, right? Wow. We just took a little deep dive right there. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Let's get back in the shallow end. So when you say when you say something is true, you, you say what you what you believe to be true, but you don't necessarily think it's part of the presupposition. Yes. I would say I believe it's true individually and I believe it's objectively true. Yeah. I'm not actually it's not true, but I'm acting in a way that hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, so we may have ones that are we may have presuppositions that aren't true. Absolutely. We would say these are true. Yeah. So we're operating, we're believing, believing like these are all true because they are. Scripture. And thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. The presuppositions come from Scripture, so we're, we're living on these presuppositions because we believe they come from Scripture. And that's the reason I was giving you examples of where do we find these in the Bible, right? Okay. That's a great question. Excellent. Um, I'm going to walk by this. This like burns my cornea every single time I walk by it. But I'm so hyperactive that I have to keep walking. So here's another. So God's at work. He's at work in individuals. And he's at work in individuals that are part of a demographic, right? And so it's a shaping the way we do ministry and our context. It's allowing us to be f have a fixed theology and a flexible methodology. So when Alabama or Japan, we're doing things differently for all those different region reasons. Um, so the next presupposition that we have um, is... We have a biblical or theological um, presuppositions. And here's, here's what I mean that means. Um, we're reformed, um, which means we have a certain way of looking at Scripture. So RYM, you're at R. Y'all know you're at RYM, which means reformed. And I know within the reformed camp, there's like, 12 different lanes, right? So there's the Dutch, there's all these different, can't, I get that, all that, but we mean reformed in the broadest sense of what do we believe about scripture, 
What do we believe? How people can know God? How can people be saved? We have certain we have a certain way of looking at Scripture through a lens, and so we are decidedly reformed as a precept. Types of students. Um, we have a ministry to all types of students and to Christians, but it's coming from a certain viewpoint, a perspective of the Reformed faith. And the summary of the Reform, one of the summaries of the Reformed faith we find in the Westminster Confession, the Faith and Catechisms. Also, my personal favorite, the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, it's kind of the catechism with a with it's like warm, right? Um, but Westminster Confessions, it's great. Okay, it is. It's wonderful. Okay, you heard it here. Um, we hold these not because we wish to follow a tradition for its own sake, but because we believe that they express in a systematic form the teachings of Scripture, which alone is infallible and ultimately authoritative. Which means our, our we believe our tradition, Reformed faith, is is. We're not saying that the Westminster Confession is infallible and it's equal with Scripture. We believe that the Westminster Confession is teaching what the infallible Scripture teaches in a system. And so, like, that, that shapes the way we teach because we have a certain way of thinking about doctrine justification. We have an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, very distinct understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so language like prophet, priest, and king, we find that in the Westminster Confession. A lot of the language, if you go back and look at the Confession and the Catechism, you've been hearing from Tim Keller, or you've been hearing all these different people. You go back, a lot of the actual language that's derived from Scripture comes from the Confession itself. Because it's seen as, and a lot of, a lot of people would say that the Westminster Confession, it maybe isn't the, the warmest of catechisms, or, but it is the finest articulation or synthesis of Reformed theology. And so, like, now we're really getting specific about our theological commitments, right? That's why we have a fixed theology. And so we have a certain way of looking at everything because of our view of Scripture, which we believe is verbally inspired by God. It is inerrant and infallible. And so we have a view of Scripture that is really robust. It's our only rule for faith and practice. Those are presuppositions. And so here's some implications of that. Our teaching and preaching and all our avenues of ministry, that is large groups, small groups, and one-on-ones, should be clearly, openly, self-consciously, unashamedly, and yet at the same time winsomely reformed. I don't like to say, I don't think of myself as TR, right, which means truly reformed or thoroughly reformed. That was something you say, you're, too, you're TR, like real reformed. I'm WR, winsomely reformed, right? really offensive to a lot of people with regard to here's what so what that means is the way i talk about the gospel is through the lens of reformed theology with people so what are the implications of that at your ground level when you're having a conversation with someone to have to have reformed theology as a presupposition hands up so like when you're sitting down with someone like how is having that as a presupposition, just a prior belief or an assumption, how does it affect the way you literally talk about the gospel? Yeah.
Yeah, the presuppositions are all connected like a web. They're not linear as much as they're this web of, right back Pratt calls webs of multiple reciprocity. They're always reforming each other. And so like, you go, we go right back to God's at work because of our understanding of the sovereignty of God, which we don't believe is just reform, not just reformed, we believe it's thoroughly biblical. And so reformed has a sola scriptura. We are committed to scripture alone, right? And so that's why we literally open up the Bible in large group, small group, and one-on-ones. So, on, so tomorrow night, we will open up the Bible in the middle of the campus at Vanderbilt University, which are not fans of Christianity at all, right? And I'm a chat, but we open up the Bible and we say, this is God's word. We read God's word. We stand under the authority of God's word when we preach and teach. And so I apply God's word to these students because I believe that's the only way you can accomplish the purpose and the goals. So you see, you are doing the presupposition of Reformed theology because you have a relationship with Scripture. You open the Bible. I'm, I'm assuming you all all use the Bible to teach with, right? So is there ever a temptation to not use the Bible, <laughs> right? You ever felt that one? Talk to me about that. Bible's boring, right? So now you see what makes this R-Y-M, right? Okay. Okay, so tell me again. So we're reformed. Yes, Leah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about you're talking about the difference between sort of expository all the way through scripture and topical. And so one of those things, so now you're back at your other presuppositions, the individual of demographic, and you're thinking about sort of like how do we then, because both of them are scripture, how do we get the word of God in to this demographic as we know these individuals because we're spending time with them, God's at work through his word. So now you're looking at like I would say a balanced diet of those things. And so, like, you can kind of shift and go, like, hey, we know we haven't been through the God. We haven't been through one of the Gospels. Let's go through one of the Gospels. And so people have, there's a bunch of different approaches to that, but they're all centered on the Word, right? So the difference is you can have expository preaching that's not line by line. So I do topical teaching a lot, some, because, because of our demographic. It, it lends itself to that, and semesters are weird. But one of the things I do is I'm always applying the scripture. So I'm opening up the Bible. I'm not springboarding into it. So because of Reformed theology, it informs the way I even approach a passage and even how I homiletically do a passage. But that's a great question. So it's a balanced diet of based on what your context needs of taking the scripture into that, that group. That's a great point. Other, other thoughts or questions? How you talk about the gospel. Like, how about this? How do you talk about salvation with a presupposition so you didn't have the presupposition? How do you talk about salvation with students? This may be different if you didn't have the presupposition of being reformed. Yeah, John.
So it affects something that's going on in you as you're preaching and, your expect, and, and then how they hear it. Right. So we're not manipulative in the way that we preach the gospel. Yeah. Yep. That's completely reformed. That's a reformed view of that. That's a great example. What else? Yes, Noah. Oh, come on. That is some serious juice right there when you're thinking about talking about assurance of salvation and students that struggle with that, especially your anxious ones that are so afraid that they're not in or they're in or they're out and things like that. And to be able to give them the sweet, wonderful, precious assurance that like John Calvin, you know, the Pope of a Reformed world, right? How dare I say that? I'm sorry, John. Um, oh, my gosh. It's inappropriate. Uh, but, like, you know what he said? Like, what do you do with people who struggle with assurance? Because I remember reading this in seminary. He's like, ask them what they think of Jesus. If Jesus is precious to you, if Jesus is precious to you, you have no reason to doubt your assurance. In other words, like, so the very evidence that they worried about whether or not they even have Jesus is evidence that, like, the fact that they have this shows them in Jesus. That's thoroughly reformed. The issue of assurance was a massive issue within reformed history. Massive theology. Massive. Worship, too. Worship was a massive issue in reformed theology in the early days of the Reformation. So a lot of it informs how we do worship. But here's the beautiful thing about worship. We have fixed theology and a flexible methodology. There's not one way to do worship as long as it is based in Scripture. Right? We believe it's Scripture. We believe it's teaching Scripture. We're pointing people to Jesus. And so there's a lot of freedom but within the understanding that it's like pointing people to Jesus and, and it's scriptural and it's biblical and it's edifying to people, right? So the way we do our prayers and the music that we choose and all those types of things, there's tons of flexibility. But a lot of it has to do with we're reformed, so we want to worship biblically. We should not couch our teaching and activities in specifically denominational or, or sectarian terminology Unless such terminology is patently biblical, especially when dealing with students from different denominational backgrounds. Okay, so that's a really technical way uh, of saying this. Because this is a presupposition, RYM and RUF are saying that we don't, even though we're called RUF and RYM, um, we don't sort of fly the flag and make Reformed theology a goal. Does that make sense? A lot of churches do. I'll just go out and say that. Um, and we also know we don't have Reformed theology as one of our principles. Now, we're thoroughly Reformed because it's a presupposition. But those are roots that are informing how we do ministry. But what we're doing is we want to see people come to Jesus. And people may come to Jesus and be part of different ministries. They may be part of different churches. And we hope they want, we want people a place where they, they preach the gospel. That's the difference between a presupposition, but there's trouble sometimes when your presuppositions become goals. And there's another illustration called the rocket, and you could put, like, the rocket's going like this, and if you put something on this side of the rocket, like, if you make Reformed theology, like, the, the goal, then you tip the rocket over, and the rocket becomes a missile and blows everyone up. Wow. Right? It does. So it, it informs your practice. It even informs your, 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 your ethos and how you, the vibe of your ministry and the flavor of your ministry and your approach of your ministry and the methods of your ministry, but it is not the goal of your ministry. You even use the tools of that. Um, yeah, so that allows you to like, 
Yeah, talk to me about that, because that's kind of sticky. That's kind of controversial in some churches. Like, that's kind of like a thing. Like, they fly. I remember going to a, cow, a church one time. I'm not going to say that. But like, I went, the, the, but, like, some churches, that's their deal, right? And, and, and that may be your church's deal. In other words, discipleship looks like people be, becoming distinctively reformed in the way that they look. And this is what we talk about all the time, which which what you're getting in the water system. So, like, talk to me about the tension between that and youth ministry. Being reformed is a presupposition, not as a goal. So tell me how you do it. I hear you. You do, you do. You've got your your inattention there, and I think the having I can only say this because I was a senior pastor and I live in sort of that same thing. So I'm not just like I'm not winging it here as much. Um, I always had to ask myself the question: Reformed theology is not an end in itself; it's a means to an end, sola Christus, to the glory of God. And so what, you're, what we're constantly doing is, and then so that affects the way we communicate it, is what we want to see is Reformed theology being this vehicle that, that highlights Jesus and that makes much of Jesus, which is what the Reformers were all about. It's a rediscovery of the gospel, for crying out loud, what it was. And like using scripture, and so seeing all of those things to see what we want is, is, is to be intentional about Christ, if not, we'll just be the, oh, we're the, we're, we're the people who hate Baptists. But it sounds like you're living in that tension, which you have to, and there's just going to be that process because it is a tight system. Reformed theology is a tight system, and it, and it feels good to have a tight system. And, it, and when you first get it, this reason they say lock a Calvinist up for five years before they let him out when they're a new Calvinist. Like, just don't let him get it. And here's why. It's a tight system, and it, you feel like everyone's dumb. Like, don't you understand how things work? Because the, th the theology is very tight, and it's very it's very salient and powerful but it's not an end in itself and we can uh, so that tension's beautiful I hear that man that's good yes McKenna
yeah. So like, which is the beautiful thing. That's a great segue to our last presupposition, the learning process. The learning process. We're going to get out early. Um, maybe. The learning process. This one, I, I love all the presuppositions, and I'm going to tell you how I use the presuppositions in my ministry that I think might be helpful to you. Um, we have assumptions about the process. We have certain assumptions about what learning is, its implications for the nature of saving faith, the elements of the process, how it's implemented, how learning is how the implications for these things, the operation of ministry on in our church, on our campuses, the roles of those involved with it, the functions of various avenues of ministry, large group, small group, one-on-ones. Here's what he's saying. The learning process is messy and slow. Like it, we have, the, the presupposition of the learning process, the reason it's so great is that we have presupposition is like, how do people learn? Uh, real slow. Really, really, really slow. And like two steps forward, three steps back. It's the process of sanctification. So we like, how do people so one, we have a learning process that affects, like that, that affects, I have implications on like the fact that we teach from the Bible, the fact that we do Bible studies, inductive, in other words, our practice, the way we do those things, but also just like how we deal with students and how people learn. How did you learn? Like, some of y'all maybe heard or been around RYM, I talk a lot about my story and how I used to rededicate my life every single summer, and I heard the gospel over and over and over and over again. And I used to go like, well, that was bad. Those, those were dumb people, and I hate that church. Until I realized, it's like, Jesus, been, Jesus was involved in my life way, way more in, really wha- in some really wacky church context. And really some really cheesy 90s stuff that was going on. And God was at work, and he loved me. And I was hearing the gospel, and I was not hearing the gospel. And it was this, like, circuitous, messy, mysterious, back-and-forth thing until I was 22 years old. And I thought about the things that I thought about until immobilized with fear, in the words of Ben Folds. Do y'all know who Ben Folds is? Thought about the things I thought about, right? And then it was the first time I was really convicted. Like, I'm actually, like, messed up. Like, I'm actually, I can't fix myself. So before, like, for whatever reason, I was hearing the gospel, and I was preaching the gospel, I'd redeck in my life, and, like, I would say, okay, I'm not going to look at dirty magazines, and I'm not going to smoke cigarettes. Sorry, I did both of those things. Try again next summer, right? I'm not going to cuss. Here's the thing. It was all behavior stuff, but it was like back and forth, all these kind of things. And then finally, I was like, I can't change myself. And then, like, I met Jesus. Have mercy on, have mercy on me, the sinner, the first time. And here's what the fascinating thing is. I thought that meant that I was no longer a Christian. How jacked up is that? I thought that meant I would lost my salvation because I was such a bad person now. And I remember talking to someone, guys, like, no, 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 that's what it means to be converted. Because he was reformed. Do you see? I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. You know, the, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul at every part, right? John Newton. All these ways. 
And so the learning process, God was at work in all these ways over the years, and he's doing the same thing on our students. And so we look at a student that we think gets it, and then the next weekend, they get drunk. And there's this, like, what in the world am I failing? It's not, no, you're just a human. It's really, really messy, and it's really, really slow. And for some people, it's really long and really slow, the learning process is. And conversion is not, we're systematic people, I know that, but the, con- the conversion process is not just this straight line, boom, boom, boom for most. It just isn't. It's a really long, messy thing for a lot of people. And I've thought I was converted a hundred times. Like, I'll hear a sermon, I'm like, I think I was converted. You know what that is? Sanctification. <laughs> it is. It's like the experience, like, I love Jesus so much more now. I love, how can I love Jesus more? How can I possibly see more of my sin and more Jesus? How can I do that? And I remember reading, because, because we believe God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, he's like that in all of his characteristics, which means I'm never going to get to the end of his grace, ever. That's the learning process. We're just now emerging learning process. There, no, there is no diploma for the learning process. There are different milestones, and we want to move people toward, towards conversion. But the learning process is something we come alongside as God is at work. It's the principles rooted in reformed theology, demographics, individuals, God is at work, local church, covenant. That's how we do it. I think the learning process is a good one for us to like, for it to be the last one. I know that they didn't order these that, that way, but the learning process and them not be you to get in people's life and them not be okay. And at the same time, you not have to doubt their salvation every time they're not okay. And then at the same time, have the ability to call people to repentance. Large group, small group, one-on-one. Like Colossians 3, you died with Christ. Now put off the old, live the new. Like we're calling people to live out their true identity in Jesus Christ, fueled by the work of the Holy Spirit and God's complete love and grace to leave the old and put on the new. But there's always going to be a battle, Romans 7, 14 through 25. That is the learning process. The experience is, wretched man that I am. And here's the thing, RYM, leadership training, here's the thing. Doesn't it feel good that maybe you'll have the chance this week to not be okay and be seen and them not go away? Struggling with stuff that you, like, because we're all going through Romans 7, 14 through 25. I mean, you're still struggling with stuff that you struggled with a long time ago, and you're like ups and downs, and you're growing, and you're not growing. There's this mixture of things. But since you're in union with Christ, you are perfect. In Christ, you have entered into the, the Holy of Holies. You can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Your conscience has been sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus. You don't think about that. Your conscience, it's not because you feel okay about your conscience, God feels okay about your conscience. That's how you can come. Your conscience has been objectively, forensically sprinkled clean. And so, like, it's not how you feel about yourself. It's how God feels about you. That's the reason you come. And so here's the thing. You're free to struggle instead of struggling to be free. And when you're free to struggle, you can let your students be free to struggle. Free to struggle. Free to be in process. That's the learning process. A correct understanding of the learning process is vital.
vital to implementation of strategies and methods and all of those things that we do. It avoids certain pitfalls and misconceptions common to ministry. Lack of integrity between doctrine and lifestyle. Dead orthodoxy. You know what I mean when I say dead orthodoxy? That is like people who have really accurate theology, but they're mean. Like you proclaim that you love Jesus, but you're mean. So what are some implications of the the learning process? Here's one. I think someone said this. You said this, McKenna. The difference between head knowledge and heart knowledge. You can say however you want to, whatever. I know that that's like cheesy or whatever. But like head knowledge, heart knowledge. Talk about the implications. In your students, in your youth ministries, the learning learning process, is your ministry more of a head knowledge, right? Or are they just feeling everything and they don't really care about they don't really care about the truth and like all this kind of thing. We don't talk about like theology and stuff like that. We just want to feel our way into it. Do you have a group like that? Or do you have a group that's just like, we've got tons of knowledge, but we're mean. We have no affection. It's not a warm group. Do you all see that? How does the learning process deal with that issue? Because that's a big one, right? First of all, you have that problem. You do. So start with you. How is God dealing with that in you? How has he dealt with it in you? I'll never forget Ray Cortez telling me when I was a pastor in Memphis. He said, Jesus, he said, Richie, Jesus. He said, Richie, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Hey, Richie, what God is doing in you is exactly he wants to do what he, he wants to do that in them. That's so liberating to me. That's the learning process. What he's doing in you is what he wants to do in them. And so listen to what he's doing in you and then go after them. And so we don't want to be satisfied with mere head knowledge or the, just the ability to verbally articulate certain concepts. That may be where a student is. And it keeps you from hating on that student. But like you're praying and saying like, hey, tell me how you feel about Jesus. And they'll tell you they don't do feelings. And we're like, well, then that means you're not a human. And you are a human. I saw you getting really, really excited about that video game. You do have feelings. You do feelings. So what does it mean to feel about Jesus? Here's the thing. You're not creating his feeling about Jesus. You're just, you're, all you're coming alongside that person and just saying, hey, what's, what's that? Let's talk about that. And the God is at work. God is at work. And you're saying, like, let's see God put those things together. You're not shaming him. Here's the thing. You're not shaming them for not having feelings. You're just going like, hey, what's up with that? Most of the people that I've met, a lot of people I've met that don't have feelings for Jesus and they're in our ministries, they want to. They have no idea how for a variety of reasons. One of them is their families don't do feelings. Their dads and their granddads and their great-granddad and their great-granddad didn't. There you go.
Normalizing their experience is so huge in the learning process. It just goes so long. When you tell them that you're part of the human race too, and you normalize it, they're like, oh, you mean I'm not the only one? A lot of them are just feeling like freaks. You just bring them in. That's the koinonia stuff. Then here's the thing. Y'all see what John's talking about. And yes, you're getting a star after the class. But like what John's talking about, do do you see how he worked through the tree? Now, we haven't done the principles yet. We'll get to that tomorrow. But, like, what he's getting through is he's valued the individual. He realized the demographic. He realizes God is at work in this person. He's getting a specific gospel into this person's life. And as he's, his method is, he's normalizing this whole experience. When he's, it's literally come down to this one thing. He's like, I struggle with anxiety, too. That is how God brings about fellowship, service, evangelism, growth, and grace, and all that stuff. Do you see that? That's bringing it all down. But he started because he was like, oh, I'm part of the human race too. How do I connect with this person? I value this one individual. This person matters. And to normalize it like, oh, I'm part of the learning process. You're part of the learning process. You're, you're doing it. That's RYM. That's RUF. That's what he did. Good job. Okay. I want to do this. Um, let me say this. No one told me this when I was going through RUF training. And I was like 39 when I started RUF, right? So I was like, what in the world? Like, and I thought I should know all these things. And people do the philosophy ministry. I was just like, I'm overwhelmed. You have used scripture four different times on the tree. What's wrong with you? Did no one edit it? Or my wife says, a woman wasn't involved in this. <laughs> it's just like it's not organized enough. It's not thoughtful. Like, so here's the thing. So it's kind of overwhelming. This is something that is caught more even than it's taught. This is going to be something that, like, you're going to, like, you kind of have to breathe it in for a little bit. So it's okay if you're completely in a blizzard right now. I was totally in a blizzard. It's because it's such a massive grid. It's an operating system that you kind of have to live in it. That's why we do one, two, three years. That's why we have people keep coming back, and we take you back through the POM. We keep taking you back through it is because you're reapplying it to your context over and over and over and over again. And so it's not, you're not dumb, right? It's not because you're not, it just takes a long time. But here's one of the ways that we do, we and our staff, we talk in their eyes all the time. I'm always talking about presuppositions. I'm always talking about the principles. And my st- staff is like rolling their eyes. I'm always spending like in our staff meetings, like 20 minutes. Let's, say, let's talk about the presupposition. Uh, and let's talk, about a con- let's talk about an issue. Boom. So we're applying it. And then over time, you start using, it's like a language. And I think the presuppositions, I think the presuppositions, the way I think of the presuppositions is I almost use them liturgically in my life. And what I mean by that, I I see them as formative because they're roots, because they're rooted. I don't think about the principles rather than I do the principles the way we teach, the way we preach. I'm applying the gospel. I'm thinking, does this person need to hear more about justification? Is this a sanctification issue? Is this glorification? All those kind of things. But personally, I'm, I'm filtering my ministry, my life through the presuppositions. In other words, I'm thinking like on a Monday at 7.30 a.m., 
God's at work. And I was thinking about what that means for me today. In other words, the presuppositions need to come home. If I was going to, any practical takeaway, the presuppositions come home to you. And so that means like, think about them. Pray through them. Find examples of scripture where you see these, them talking played out. And use them in a way that like, you're sort of living through them, talking about them, um, that become formative. And before you know it, you're kind of living out of the present. It's changing the way you walk. In other words, they begin to inform our implicit behavior, the, the presuppositions do, if we begin to use them that way. If you don't, they're just weird. Like, because of the way this is set up, if you don't kind of, if you're not keep kind of coming back to the presuppositions and you're not talking about them in your staff, if you're not sort of reading about them, thinking about them, processing them, whatever, then they just seem really obscure and even like abstract or Gnostic, esoteric kind of like presupposition kind of thing. Bring them into your life. Bring them into your devotional. Bring them, bring them into your staff and let the presuppositions kind of like watch God work. It's the way he frees you from your ministry, I think. Questions about any of this? Okay, that's all the content I have. Thoughts, questions, something you want to ask? Comments? This is helpful. Some of y'all have heard this stuff before. Is it just because it's 343 on Tuesday or Monday? What day is it? Tuesday. I think you need to apply the learning process to yourself in this. And, and our, our, our knee jerk is like, this is a method. And it isn't a method. And so what, that, what I mean by that is, it's really changing the way you reflect on your ministry. So as you're considering, like, what it would do is like, I would just take a look at your ministry and start thinking about your ministry. It, it's, it helps you be meta. It helps you meta think about your ministry. So like, I wonder why we're doing that. Like, I wonder why, like, what, like, does that fit our demographic? What is our demographic? Honestly, ask the question, like, what is our demographic? Ask that question, like, what, that'd be a great question for y'all to have when y'all go to whatever cool farm-to-table restaurant you're going to tonight. It's like, <laughs> literally, like, like, hey, what's the demographic? What's the demographic of your group? Talk to me you about your demographic. Well, that is, and so, like, that's why RUF can't, that's why I love RUF and I, like, I think I'm going to never quit because we do training. We do this two times a year, once in Denver and once in Dallas, and we get together and all we're sort of like doing is just laughing and enjoying and encouraging one another. But the other thing is we're talking about demographic. We're talking about, we're talking about this. This is the language that we use. And so we get used to using it with each other. So like, talk about the learning process or talk about why how you haven't been, like, resting in the reality that God's at work in your ministry. It's been all about you working, and that's why you're burned out. Right? Uh, talk about that, like, individual. Like, think about, think about those individuals that are the widow at Nain in your ministry. 
that are dying and lonely and awkward. Think about the ones that are cool and sexy and rich, right? Both of them. Think about how we're reaching those people with the gospel and allows you to like step back from your ministry and you not be your ministry, which will keep you in the ministry. Like, so you can look at your ministry and go like, oh, that's demographic. That's a weird thing. There are things like, yeah, that's, I, I don't think we're going to be able to change that. That's just weird. That's a thing. Some of y'all work in hard contacts. Some of y'all work with, I mean, I, I get it. And that some of y'all work in staffs and in things, all kind of stuff like that. God's at work in every single bit of it. Other thoughts, questions? Did that answer your question, John? Good. You just kind of use it or lose it. Yeah. What else? What are some thoughts? Leah? Who's this? Who's Matt? Matt? Who? No, I'm joking. <laughs> and it was so helpful because I was like freaking out and thinking, all right, I don't know that I love God, kind of, in theory. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I, you know, I love the idea of going to a wall and theology and I read my Bible and I feel like I'm mm. like, ah, I don't know if this is for me. And I watched this video and I still watch it every time I'm like, ah, I don't know, my heart is just going all over the place. And it's so encouraging every time to see God is the one doing that work in your heart. Mm-hmm. So if you guys are Make it available to everybody. Can you like tell everybody about it? Is there a group? Y'all have a group me or something? I, I'm not sure. Is Ellen rogue? Oh, good. She's rogue. She's rogue. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you're here, Leah. This is actually my daughter's uh, youth person, uh, youth worker. Yeah. Yes. Tell me your name. Adam Chandler. Uh, Adam Chandler. Matt Chandler. I grew up with Adam Chandler. Matt Chandler. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's great. One of the things that God loves us, and the fact that we're like, anytime you, anyone I see that disconnect between the head and the heart stuff, um, that is so the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't shame the gap, but what He does is like He's just like He's. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn; He convicts. And so, like, I think it's always an opportunity for more life. It's Jesus drawing you toward himself in his heart. And so, like, it's, yeah, that's really, really good. That's great. Thanks. Not as good as what Adam Chandler would say. <laughs> All right, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, it is. And so here's the thing. If Christianity is like this country, right, then our denominations are like our neighborhood. And you have to have a neighborhood, you know. Like it's you have you have a place. Everyone has a tradition, but all those traditions are imperfect, and and there's a humility, um, where we can be both distinctively reformed and have our our viewpoints, but then also like I'm the, I'm a chaplain. I'm the only evangelical chaplain at Vanderbilt, um, and and uh, it was kind of subtle flex. Sorry, I didn't I didn't I didn't feel like it was going to be that way, but it was a kind of a flex. Uh, weird. It's a weird flex. Um, of Jesus, all those different things go with people who don't believe that Jesus is like the, exclu- the exclusivity of Jesus, all those different things that like learning how to work by still staying distinctively reformed. I think one of the reasons I'm still on campus is because of our philosophy ministry. Well, it, what it does, it has me be like, <coughs> I'm not the philosophy ministry, like, and we don't, we don't major on reform things, but we're like thoroughly biblical. And so we're able to kind of, like, play well with others. As long as, like, there's, like, unless, until they come to me and say, like, you can't say that Jesus is the only way, or you can't say that, you know, right? Those are, there are certain things that are non-negotiables, essentials that we won't compromise on. But it allows us to be very flexible. It, it, it allows us to nuance the way we do ministry by still being thoroughly orthodox and robust. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Very thoughtful. Yeah. Anyone else? All right. Where's some people going tonight? Where y'all going? Yeah, 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 go ahead. Before you talk about food, go ahead. That's beautiful. That's really, really, that's really profound and beautiful. Like, yeah, we just show up and we decrease that Christ might increase. And this is a, a tool that helps us do that and keep Christ the center and not be their Messiah and have that healthy differentiation with the people we're ministering to, uh, with, but at the same time being empathetic and caring about them. Um, that's so good, man. That's a great summary of the philosophy ministry and a great place to stop that. Uh, where y'all going to eat? Any fun places? This is kind of, come on, this is the fun part. That's my favorite part of training. <laughs> Delicious drinks and food. I'm jealous. Pharmacy? Okay, you get a cheeseburger? Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, well, I'm that excited. Where else? So you're going to be in East. Yeah. Where? Oh, yeah. That's a new, that's kind of a new place, isn't it? China, that's a Mexican place. Okay, I've heard that's good. What else? What is another? 
Even if you're not going to some cool hip hipster place. Um, butchering the butchering the bee. Butchering the bee. These are kind of like you may not want to expensify this one, uh, though it's <laughs> expensive. You know, expensive. We call you. We use expensify, which is our way of like turning in our receipts. So uh, expense expensive. Butcher and the Bee is really good. City House is really good. Uh, the pharmacy is delicious. That's a really fun place. There's so many good places in Nashville. You kind of can't go wrong. Um, it's kind of become a foodie, foodie city. Uh, who's been Pinewood Social? That's a fun place, and it's not super expensive. Y'all going to Pinewood? Yeah, Pinewood's a fun place. Are y'all all going into Nashville? Kind of like, yeah, you kind of have to if you want to go. To, yeah. So Pinewood Social's great. Husk. Uh, is a cool place too. Um, if you want to go to really expensive places, but there are also tons of little taco. Like twelve, just go to Twelve South, okay, and just walk around. You'll find a taco and some ice cream, okay. Have fun, y'all. Let me pray for y'all. Any other questions before we break? Okay, Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this group. Um, thank you that we have something like RYM that you love us so much that you help us pause and just remind us of what we just heard that you're at work. And you want us to go out, you want this group to go out tonight and, and to celebrate um, that we're, we have this ability to have joy and sadness at the same time because of the resurrection. And it's because we have this hope that is an anchor for our soul that we can go out and have fun and not be okay at the same time. So I just pray that you bless everyone. Their, their batteries would be recharged. They experience the goodness of this great city and, and just feel your life and, and love on one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. See you all tomorrow.